Well, certain sermon illustrations are worth recycling. And many, many years ago, I heard a great illustration. I'll share it with you. So there's a, a boat captain, and he's cruising along, and it's kind of foggy and dark out, and he sees what he assumes is another boat coming toward him, a pair of lights. And so he gets on his loudspeaker. He's got a pretty big ship, and he says, I want you to take 10 degrees, turn to the right so I can pass you. And the, the voice comes back in the darkness. No, I'd like you to turn 10 degrees to the, to the right so you can pass me. And this kind of goes back and forth, back and forth as the lights get closer and closer. And this ship's captain is getting quite exacerbated and he hollers out again, you need to turn your boat so that I can get by. And out of the darkness, he finally hears this voice. I don't care who you are. I'm the lighthouse keeper. And you better turn or risk disaster. It's a great illustration that reminds us of how obstinate we can be. By nature, we're not very submissive people. We like to be in charge. We like things our way. It's not easy to submit to authority. But as Christians, we believe that authority is granted by God. And we want as much as possible to submit to authority. But the caveat is this. It has to be proper authority. It has to be authority ordained by God. If it's improper authority, if it's tyrannical authority, if it's authority that's overstepping its bounds, we're not going to submit to that kind of authority, especially if that authority usurps the authority that God alone has over a particular area of our lives. So we've been doing this sermon series. This is the third week. We're just going to go four weeks because then we've got to do some Christmas celebrating. And the sermon series is called All Under God. And in theological terms, it's a study in what we call sphere sovereignty. So you think of circles. If you have authority, it has limits and boundaries to it. It has a circle around it. So I have authority as a pastor, but it has boundaries and limits around it. I don't have the authority that God has over you. The state has authority, but it's not limitless authority. The church has authority. The family has authority. A husband has authority. A parent has authority. A police officer has authority. A teacher has authority, but all authority has a limit around it, a boundary. They have a job description. And unfortunately in our world, too many people in positions of authority want to make their authority limitless. And in doing so, they essentially become like little gods. So we're trying to understand in scripture, okay, we want to be submissive, but what does it mean to submit? And what are the boundaries of our submission. So in sermon number one, we did a broad study of God's sovereign authority over all things. And then just a real brief introduction to the authority God has given to the family, which is the first creational institution, marriage, and then the children coming from that, then the church, and then the state. So that was a broad overview. That sermon's posted online. Last week, we discussed the authority of the family, specifically the authority of husbands over their wives and the authority of parents over their children. And today we're going to discuss the authority of the state, which is rather timely, I believe, given the circumstances of this week. So I want to begin just by a brief background description here to answer the question, what do, we, what do we mean when we say the state? Like, what is that? What's the state? And why do we even have 
states? Why don't we just have one global society? One global nation where everyone sort of gets along. So a few points here. Number one, the state, the idea of countries, of nations, of sovereign lands, isn't a creational institution. God didn't create land boundaries in nations and ethnic groups on day six of creation. This came afterwards. So the family was a creational institution. The state, the idea of a state was developed afterwards, once sin entered into the world. And, and where that comes from, do you remember the Tower of Babel, where everybody was speaking one language, and they sort of all got along, which you might think, well, that's a good idea. Why Global peace, world peace, everybody gets along. But the problem is, is that human beings that haven't surrendered themselves to God, when they get along too much, they actually cause great destruction. So when you get a million people in a room that don't love Jesus, they can do more damage than if you have you know, 10 groups of 100,000 that don't actually like each other. So in the Tower of Babel, God actually dispersed the nations. He confused the language. And this is the first instance in scripture where we have actual nationhood come on the scene. And it says in Genesis chapter 10, verse five, and in Deuteronomy 32, verse eight, and in Exodus 34, verse 24, that God created what he calls boundaries, borders, or tribal lands. So we have this biblical idea that in a broken world, God affirms nationhood. And nations have boundaries and borders and certain tribes tend to sort of condense or collect themselves in certain areas. Now, as society moved along, societies became more structured. And over time, governments started to preside over states. We see this even in Israel, where for a period of time, Israel was ruled by men like, like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. They just sort of presided over the civil affairs of the nation. And then they died, and over time, judges rose up. And they weren't really appointed. It was just like the person that was sort of the tallest and smartest or boldest or most courageous would just sort of step onto the scene and kind of in an ad hoc, loosey-goosey way represent the nation. But over time, the people are like, yeah, we, we kind of like a king. And God's like, okay, well, you can have a king, but I got to warn you, kings are good and kings are bad. Kings might benefit you, but kings will also overtax you. They'll develop large harems. They'll take your daughters. They'll, they might abuse you at times. So right out of the gates, God's like, okay, I'll give you kings if you want a king, but kings can be both a blessing and a curse. And then if you read through first and second kings, which is essentially about what? good kings and bad kings, you see that even in Israel, a theocracy ruled by God, we have good kings and we have bad kings. And so this is the state of the world within which we live. So a state is essentially a sovereign realm within which a group of citizens live, which is overseen by some sort of a government. And some states are ruled by kings or queens, and some are ruled by democratic processes, constitutional monarchies. There's all sorts of different governing strict uh, structures. Some states are ruled by absolute dictators, like in North Korea. So this is the, the, the world within which we live. So that's what a state is. And states are overseen by governments. 
So we wanna ask this question now as we enter into the biblical text, what authority does a state actually have? What authority does a state actually have? So we need to refer to our sort of anchor verse in this series, which is Colossians 1.16. And in Colossians 1.16, it says, for by him that is speaking of Christ, all things were created. How many things? All. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So this is the, that means angels are part of that because they're invisible. They're still ruled by God. And you're ruled by God whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So whether it doesn't matter what level of authority you're in, all things were created through him and for him. So this is our anchor verse for this whole series. I'm gonna read it every week. And the emphasis here is that no matter what authority exists in the physical or immaterial world, it's all under God, which is the name of our sermon series. It's all under God. Now, in Reformed churches like ours, we tend to emphasize this a lot. We emphasize the absolute sovereignty of God over creation, over life, over culture. Unfortunately, there are many Reformational churches across our country that have language like that in their doctrinal statement, but they clearly don't believe it. Surprise, surprise. They don't believe it because they're allowing the state to usurp Christ's authority over their church. It's interesting that if you look, this is a little sidebar, if you look broadly at the different sort of groups or gatherings of Christians across our world, Anabaptist churches rose up because they're like, nope, there's a strict separation between the church and the state. Well, clearly in light of their response, many of them don't believe that. Charismatic churches rose up and said, we believe in sovereign, the sovereign power of God to heal every disease through the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not afraid of death. God can heal everything. Clearly, they don't believe that because most of them are closed and cowering in fear. The Reformed churches are like, well, our core doctrine is that we believe in the absolute sovereignty of God over creation. Clearly, they don't believe that because they're not acting that way. But these things are rooted in Scripture. Now, in the Canadian context, in the Canadian context, and we're going to spend some time in Romans 13 today, but in the Canadian context, when we observe how the state acts in relationship to the church and culture, apparently the Canadian state has decided that it has authority where and by what means you can travel how you can use your property, what you can and cannot say in a counseling session, where you get your antibodies from. So if you get them because you got sick and recovered versus you got it from a vaccine, both have antibodies. Well, these don't count, but these do. So they decide right down to your antibodies, what you can do based on where you got them from. I'd say that's pretty, pretty strict. How much money and how much tax you must pay. Who and how you can attend church 
and how you should sit in church and how you should greet and interact with people in church. Now, let me just say this. Let's suppose for a moment that you think some of these things are good ideas. Okay, so we'll just give it to you. Let's say any of those things, you're like, well, those are good ideas. You know, I, I understand rationally why the government might say we should do this or not do that. Like, yeah, that, that's a good idea. Okay, so let's, let's just assume for a moment that all of these things are good ideas. Can we assume that for a moment? Just for a moment, okay? That all these things are good ideas. Well, regardless of whether you think they're good ideas, <laughs> it still begs the question, does the state have the authority to mandate these things over our lives? So I have, I have lots of good ideas for your family. Would you like me to share them? I have some good ideas as to where you should live and how you should live and how you should dress and what you should eat and what dog you should purchase. I have some good ideas. Let's suppose for a moment that all of my ideas for your life are good ideas. The question still needs to be asked, does Aaron have the authority to tell me what to do in every area of life? Well, if I, if I took that authority upon myself, you'd say, cult leader. But strangely, we live in a country where many Christians seem quite content to allow the state to control every single aspect of their lives. They don't even say anything in response. So let's ask the question again. What authority does the state have? So the, the verse of the, the last two years is Romans, the passage of the last two years is Romans 13. Let's just go to Romans 13. We're gonna have it on the screen, but I want you to open your Bibles too. And I want you to just follow along. I, I don't understand why this passage is so complicated. It seems pretty crystal clear to me. So I'm gonna read it and then we're just gonna go back and we're gonna go verse by verse and we're gonna just look at it and say, what does it say? What does it not say? So Romans 13, verses one to seven, here's, here's how it reads. Let every person, so how many people are included within every? All, be subject to the governing authorities. Any ambiguity on that? Grammatically? Make sense? Okay. Next, next statement. For there is no authority except from God. Okay, so great. We don't have a contradiction between Colossians 1.16 and Romans 13.1. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now there's debate as to whether you're getting that judgment from God or the authorities, but you're probably gonna get it from both. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. Notice that moral word there, good. Do what is good and you'll receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. That's a symbol of justice and judgment and punishment. For he is the servant of God. And listen to this, an avenger who carries out God's wrath. On who? On pastors trying to preach the gospel? Is that what it says? No, on the wrongdoer. 
Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. You can live with a clear conscience that you've lived properly. For because of this, you also pay taxes. And by the way, the Roman tax rate in the first century was 1% of your income, just in case you're wondering, not 100% of your income. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed, meaning that if it costs the government X number of dollars for you to exist, pay your way, you owe it. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So let's just kind of go through this and make sure we have clarity on it. So first, verse number one, just breaking this down into bite-sized pieces, I think we could all agree that verse number one serves as a broad introductory statement to call us to be subject, dot, 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 to authorities that God has appointed. Okay, so God has appointed authority. We're good with that. Verse two then, essentially is saying the opposite. So whoever then resists authority is gonna get in trouble. So submit to authority. This is the positive way of presenting the teaching. You need to submit to authority. It's appointed by God. Verse number two, if you don't do it, look out. So he's teaching in the positive and he's teaching in the negative. And then in verse three, we get a little more information given to us on how authorities function. So we know they have their authority from God. So now they have a job description. Just like wives are called to submit to their husbands, but husbands have a job description. And children are called to submit to their parents, but there's a job description. And church people are called to submit to their pastors, but there's a job description. So what is the job description of the state? Well, essentially we're told that rulers punish evil and they reward good. So this begs the question, well, who decides what's right and wrong? Who decides what's good and what's evil in this passage? Who, who decides it? Well, obviously God, because God has appointed rulers as his deacons. So is, is God going to appoint a ruler and then say, okay, I want you to just murder all your people? No, he wouldn't say that. That would be bad conduct. So the ruler serves as God's co-regent. God assigns the ruler to serve his purposes, to punish evil. Who decides what evil is? God decides what evil is. And to reward righteousness. Who decides what righteousness is? God decides what righteousness is. So in case that isn't clear already in the text, in verse four, we have this reference to the sword, which is essentially a further explanation of the state's job description. And they, they carry the sword, and the sword represents God's justice in culture. So when you're like, okay, let's say, let's say we catch a murderer in the act, and he has to be punished. Whose job is it to punish the murderer? Is it the local church pastors? No, it's not my job. It's not my job to arrest criminals. It's not my job to execute rapists. It's not my job to park my car on the side of the road and to pull over drunk drivers. That's not my job. I might call the police and say, hey, you know, I just saw a guy do such and such. Can you go investigate? But it's not the church's job 
to execute justice in culture. It's not our job description. It's not the job description of a husband to exercise justice in culture. So even way back in the Levitical law, if someone breaks into your house at night, can't see who it is, they're attacking you, and you push back and you kill him, you're not responsible for that. But if it's daylight and you exercise too much force and you take his life, you've stepped outside of your job description. That's the authority's job. And you could be put to death for taking the life of someone who breaks into your house by exercising too much force on him. And we have those kinds of ideas present even in modern law. So there's times when you know, we say we gotta take justice into our own hands because maybe we're the only person on the scene. But that's an exception to the rule. The rule is it's the state's job to set up courts. This is where Islam gets it wrong. Because in their religion, they want their mosques to rule over state courts. There's no separation between the state and the mosque. But in Christian thinking, there's a separation between the state and the church. The church isn't under the state, but rather it's overseen by the state. Did we bring up that diagram earlier, Luke? I think I forgot to mention it to you. So look at this diagram. We have Christ at the top, and Christ is sovereign over the family, the state, and the church. But the state isn't the church, and the church isn't the state, and the family isn't the church, and the church isn't the family. So if you're like, well, you know, I'm at home, and I'm the pastor of my own family, and we do house church, and it's just you know, me and my kids. No, you don't understand sphere sovereignty. You're the spiritual leader over your home, but you're not your family's pastor. A church, by the way, has to necessarily have at least two families for the simple reason there has to be at least two elders over a church. Because in every instance in the New Testament, it says appoint elders, 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 elders. Not one, but more than one. So a duly appointed New Testament church or a duly organized New Testament church always has at least two elders, which means it has to have at least two families. And one would presume many more in order for the elders to elder someone. So again, the state's job description is to represent God's justice and culture. And then in verse five, we have a repeated call to be in subjection in order to avoid punishment. So there's nothing in this text that says, oh, you should submit yourselves to the state when it's punishing you for doing good. That's not what the text is about. They're punishing you for doing evil. States shouldn't punish their citizens for doing good, nor should states not punish citizens that are doing evil. And good and evil, again, are determined by the God who appoints people to positions of authority. And then in verse 6, We pay taxes to the state, and what do they use them for? To fulfill their God-assigned duties, to oversee public justice, to make sure that criminals are prosecuted, to make sure there's jails built to, to lock people up, to make sure there's roads built so you can get to the jail. These are all legitimate uses of our taxes, and if the government is doing its job and decides, okay, we need X number of dollars in order to oversee public justice in culture, then we should be like, yeah, we'll pay up. We'll pay our taxes, no problem with that. If I drive on the road, of course I'm gonna pay for it. If there's police presence in my community, of course I want those officers to have the gear they need and 
the vehicles they need and to be well reimbursed. Why, why would I not want that? I'm benefiting from it. The state's job is to oversee public justice. So overall, we pay taxes when it's owed, which is a moral statement. We pay tax, we, we give respect when it's owed. We give honor when it's owed. So we have no problem with that. That's what the passage is essentially saying. It's calling us to submit ourselves to duly appointed authorities in the state system that are responsible to oversee public justice, to uphold righteousness, and to punish evil. Period. That's, that's how that passage works. So let's just hit it in the reverse. What doesn't the passage say? What doesn't it say? Let me give you four things. It doesn't say that the state decides what's morally right and wrong. It doesn't say that. No. The state doesn't get to decide that unborn children can be executed. The state doesn't get to, be, to decide that medically assisted suicide is acceptable. The state doesn't get to decide the terms of Christian worship. The state doesn't get to decide how many kids you have or how you educate your children. The state doesn't decide whether you take aspirin or not. The state doesn't have the authority to decide whether you can go and visit your granny in the nursing home or not. The state doesn't decide what's right and wrong. God decides what's right and wrong. But in a statist mindset, the state decides everything, does it not? And this is what we're seeing increasingly in Western culture. Secondly, the state has, it doesn't say the state has authority apart from God. It doesn't say the state can just develop their own job description, take authority over whatever they want, take authority over your property, take authority over your diet, take authority over your health choices, take authority over how far you sit from someone else. You might still think that's a good idea. It doesn't matter whether it's a good idea or not. They don't have the authority to tell you that. So it doesn't say that the state has authority apart from God. Third, it doesn't say that the state can expand its job description to literally include everything. It doesn't say that. It says they have authority over public justice. And fourth, it doesn't say no matter what evil they do, you must submit to it. So this, this is where it's, it's, it's rather fascinating if you kind of listen to what's going on in our culture today. And you literally hear Christians arguing. And I shared this illustration before. Well, even if it's Hitler, we got to submit to him. After all, he's appointed by God. No matter what they do. Well, it's would, you, would you ever, if a woman came to you and her face is beaten and bloodied, her eyes are swollen, her arms are broken. She's like, you know, my, my husband just beat the tar out of me. Would you say, well, submit, submit to your husband. It's appointed by God. Actually, if you did that, you'd probably be arrested. Would you say to a child, let me get quite graphic, that's being sexually molested by a family member? Well, I know it's not good, but just pray for the molester's salvation. Submit to him. He's an adult. This would be morally repugnant. We would all understand this is not acceptable. Does anybody have uh, Kim Jong-il's 
picture as their Facebook profile? This tyrant over in North Korea that murders his people to the point that some of these people don't even know there's a world outside of North Korea. Do we, do we applaud him? Well, he's, he's appointed by God if he wants to kill you. Romans 13. Do we chastise the early Christians who were forbidden to meet for worship, but fled into the catacombs for a hundred years? Do we say, you shouldn't have been in the catacombs. There were orders, you shouldn't have been in the catacombs. Now we would say, good on them. So what on earth is the modern church thinking when we have pastors across our country actively encouraging their people to submit to every edict, every law, every rule, every health order that so-and-so and such-and-such happens to dream up? Like, what, what, what is going on in our thinking? It's, it's actually a disgrace. And if we're not vindicated in heaven, there's, there's a reckoning coming. When at some point, I hope and trust that future peoples will look back and say, what on earth was the Canadian church thinking in 2021? Like what on earth were they thinking? Just like we assess slavery that way or the residential school system that way. We're like, what were these people thinking? Or we assess Nazism, like, how do you get the most modern, sophisticated nation on earth to execute millions of people, innocent people? Like, what were they thinking? But there's a lesson learned in this, and that is most people are lemmings. Just follow the crowd right over the cliff. But God has called his church to have a prophetic voice. And one of the roles of godly people is to warn states, hey, you guys better put the brakes on, you're going too far. Let me give you a biblical example of this, where the state's authority is limited. Find your way to the book of 1 Kings. Remember we talked about good kings and bad kings earlier? Well, we're gonna talk about a bad king today. And he had a bad wife too. And uh, his name was Ahab. He was the king of Samaria, so you can find your way to 1 Kings 21. And this king, you know, he had wealth and popularity and power and all that kind of stuff. But he decided, hmm, well, I'm the king. I must have authority over everything. So the text tells us in verse one, now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. This is 1 Kings 21, verse one. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. So he starts off trying to be reasonable. I want it. If you just comply, I'll give you something of value. But you see what Naboth understood is that Ahab didn't have that authority because under Jewish law, plots of land had to stay in the family because each clan was assigned plots of land they could sell them temporarily if they were in debt, but after 50 years, they would always get them back. And this allowed for there to be a land balance where no one person could take over all of the acreage of the nation. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid, so he appeals to God because God's authority had forbidden it, that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen 
because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. In other words, he's being a sucky baby. For he said to him, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he laid down on his bed and turned his face and would not eat. So you picture this immature clown in his room. Like, Now skip forward to verse 10. So they, they come up with a plot. I won't read the whole thing, but they come up with a plot. His wife actually suggests it where they're going to try to take this guy's life so he could take the land. So they, they set two worthless men opposite him. They, they, they let them bring a charge against him saying, well, you've cursed God and the king. Ooh, you know, he's a blasphemer. He has no respect for civil government. And they take him out and stone him to death. And then further it says, they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Verse 14, then they sent to Jezebel, that is his nasty wife, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. Verse 16, and as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. And all the people said, well, Romans 13. Might not have been good, but Romans 13. Is that what they did? No. This passage is clearly a negative example of a person duly appointed to lead a state usurping his authority. He's going beyond his job description. And one might say, but what, sh what should the church do? What should the people of God do? Maybe, as people often say, the church should stay out of politics. You ever heard that? We should never mention politics from the pulpit. Right? What do you mean by that? What do you mean by politics? Do you mean public justice? If so, I, I agree. If the state decides to build a 100,000 square foot prison or a 120,000 square foot prison, that's not my job to decide. If the state's arresting criminals and they're doing it by using Ford cruisers as opposed to GM cruisers, we don't need to criticize that. If they're building roads, they're putting up signs. It's not my, not my sphere of authority. So if that's what you mean by politics, I agree. We don't need to spend our Sunday mornings cluttering up our sermons, criticizing states that are exercising public justice over their people. Why would we spend our time doing that? It's not our job. Just like I'm not gonna criticize you for the decisions you make with your children, unless they're immoral. But when the state usurps their authority, starts killing people, stealing land, forbidding worship, wow, don't mention politics. Of course we're supposed to get involved in things like that. Apparently, Elijah understood that because Elijah, in 1 Kings 21, verses 17 to 19, it says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, arise, go and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. So Naboth confronts, or sorry, Ahab, Elijah, confronts the tyrant. 
he gets political. He calls out the state for transgressing their sphere of authority. He pronounces God's judgment upon the tyrant king for going well beyond his job description in the same way that you naturally would approach a husband who's beating his wife or a parent that's abusing their child or a pastor that's being cult-like in his leadership of the church. Of course we should do this. Why are we even having this discussion? So then the question is, where should we submit to the state? Well, when they enforce God's moral and civil laws to punish those who break them. Then we're like, well done. That was, that was genius legislation. Thank God for this judge that threw the murderer in jail. We should, we should encourage and submit and be thankful for states that execute judgment properly. Now, I just want to end with a couple very practical questions because people are sort of thinking about this. So we live in a culture and state where, you know, we, we're, it's already a statist state. So for example, the state decided some time ago, I think wrongly, to take over the medical system, to take over the schooling system. At the time, it might've sounded like a good idea because we were still in a Christianized nation and we sort of trusted them. So we're like, I got a great idea. There's kids that can't get education. Let's start a public school system. We can teach people the Bible. We can lead them in the Lord's Prayer. We can have Bible classes and Christian clubs. Everyone's like, that sounds like a great idea. Christians had already been educating their children for a long time. But they're like, well, we can have public impact now. And then years ago, Christians started hospitals. That was our idea. It wasn't the state's idea. We started hospitals. They started off as field hospitals for soldiers and developed into hospitals. You know, many of the hospitals in Canada still have Christian roots, Hotel Du, the old Grace Hospital. These were started by Christians. They're like, hey, we, we should help sick people. But then they get expensive. And at some point the state says, ah, oh, do you want us to run it? Sure. So now we all grow up two, three generations later and we actually think it's normal for the state to educate our children. It's not biblical, but we think it's normal because that's what we've been exposed to. We think it's normal for the state to preside over public medicine. We just assume, well, that, that must, didn't God give them that job? Because a few generations have gone by and we've forgotten. Well, we need to re-educate ourselves. No, 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 no. The state has no authority over your health. Romans 13 does not give the state authority over the spread of a virus. Folks, even if it's a good idea for them to take authority over it, they don't have the authority. This is what I've been arguing all along. People are like, you're an anti-vaxxer. No, I'm not. I just don't think the state has authority over what I put into my body. You're anti-science. No, I'm not. But the state doesn't preside over medical science. You're opposed to public education. I don't mind collaborative education. If you want to send your kid to a public school, fine. You're going to still stand before God for it. It's your choice. I'm not in charge of how you educate your kids but the state has no authority over my children, how they're educated. Is this too nuanced for people or what? We don't think about this stuff. So the bottom line is, whether it's a good idea or not, the fight we're fighting is a fight about who has authority over what. And what I notice about God 
is that when God gives a person authority, he always puts boundaries on it because he knows authority can be abused. But when the state takes authority, their circle just gets larger and 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 larger. And it's like so obvious that in parts of our country, like New Brunswick, there's discussions about banning people from grocery stores because they haven't done what the state told them they need to do. So then, because a lot of people are pragmatists, I thought I'd end with a little bit of pragmatism. Because many of us are thinking about the, the, the virus, right? The contagion. It's like, okay, Aaron, like, I get it. You know, you've, you've preached this sermon over and over again. Like, I know Christ is Lord of the church. I know that. I, I know the state's out of control. I, I, I know that. But there's a virus. So be a reasonable man. So how, how should the church respond to a contagion? Maybe the way God tells us we should respond to a contagion. Do you know that God's word is very practical and it answers all the major questions of life? So contagions aren't new to 2020 and 2021. The Bible is very clear on how to respond to contagions. You could find your way to Leviticus 13.4. And if there is a sickness that spreads in a community, the person who's sick, who has symptoms, should be inspected and quarantined. So we actually believe in quarantines as Christians. Quarantining is a good thing. We're biological beings. And if a person is sick, you quarantine the sick. That's God's plan for how to respond to contagions. But man likes to complicate things. Yeah, but modern science says we don't know if you're sick or you might be sick or you may not be sick or maybe you're asymptomatic or maybe you're this or maybe you're that. And we, we start to throw all these extra little details in and we start to stack law upon law upon law upon law upon law. And what happens is the same thing that happens in legalistic churches when people stack law upon law upon law upon law. So we say, well, yeah, I know that um, the Bible says we should dress modestly, but people clearly don't get it. So we're gonna come up with a dress code. I mean, that makes sense, right? And then we're gonna make the dress code stricter and stricter and stricter and stricter. We're gonna stack law upon law upon law upon law upon law. So everyone's literally wearing the same clothing. And everyone's like, well, it makes sense. I mean, we gotta enforce it. This is what legalism does in the church. And many of us have come out of legalistic churches. We're like, yeah, no thanks. But we're content with legalism in the world where it's law upon law upon law. We don't say anything because it makes sense. Folks, keep it simple. You know the KISS acrostic? K-I-S-S, what does it stand for? Keep it simple, saint. <laughs> I know what some of you were thinking. We just follow God's law. You're born, you're gonna get sick many times, at some point you will die. You might be young, you might be middle-aged, you might be old. If you're sick and have a contagious disease, you have it inspected and you go on quarantine. That's it. That's it. That's it. Obviously, it would make sense if a person knows they're vulnerable to take extra precautions. No problem with that. But locking up young people little children who are healthy that literally have a 0% chance of dying? 
statistically? Why, why would we do that? Destroy businesses, rob people of gospel opportunities, force people into addictive behavior and depression and loneliness, just in case you're asymptomatic. This is where legalistic medicine goes. And it's not acceptable because God's law is the way forward for any nation. Let's live our life with resurrection hope. We should ramp up our ministry when people are suffering. And at the end of the day, we should pray and trust in the Lord. The Lord has numbered every one of your days. And you're not gonna live a day longer or a day less. You know your birth date. You don't know your death date yet, but God knows it. And at the end of the day, we live in a broken world, folks. But we have resurrection hope. This is the message we want the world to know. This is why we act differently. This is why we don't cower to tyranny. This is why we don't live in fear. Because we're putting our trust ultimately in the Lord of hosts, who is our ultimate Lord and master.